This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Uh, if you ever want to know what the Bible thinks about something, if you ever want to know, like, what is the paradigm, the best place to go? Does anyone know the best place to go? The beginning. Come on, you guys have watched Sound of Music. You start at the very big... I won't sing it. All right. Uh, Genesis, chapter 2, right at the start of the Bible, Adam and Eve hanging out in the garden. Um, it says this. It's on the screen. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So that's like the first instruction that is given by God to a human being in the whole Bible. This is before it's all gone wrong, before they've stuffed it up and eaten the fruit and get cast out of the garden, all that kind of stuff. When everything is good, there's work to do. So if you think that work is a pain, that work is a curse, that you wish you didn't have to do it, well, according to the Bible, work is good. Work is not a punishment that comes because of sin. Work is not the outworking of, of the brokenness of creation. It's not part of our suffering. Work is good and right, and it is what we were made for. God's original intention for human beings, men and women, is this thing that he calls work. And the picture of work here in Genesis chapter 2 is the work of tending to a garden. Uh, those two key words there, to work, to work it and to keep it. Uh, the first word is kind of about making the garden fruitful. It's planting things, it's pruning things, it's cultivating, it's picking the fruit, uh, all, all that kind of cultivation work. That's that first word. In that word that's just work in verse 15. Uh, and the second bit of work is keeping it, which is about protecting the garden from the chaos outside. The weeds and the thorns uh, and, and the, the bugs that might come and eat your leaves or your fruit. I'm not very good at gardening, but I understand that's something you're supposed to be careful about. So there's these kind of two concepts. One, one is making it good, and the other is keeping it good. That's the two kinds of work. Keep that in mind, because we're going to come back to that. Now, do you think Adam took a wage for his work in the garden? Do you think he got any money for all his gardening work? No. So, at the beginning, work, it doesn't matter if it's paid or unpaid work. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's work at home or work out of the home. It doesn't matter if it's work at the church on a roster or work in the rest of your life, Monday to Saturday. It's all work. Work is just putting in effort to make the world a better place or putting in effort to keep the world from falling apart. 
But in our world, we don't think of work that way. Often we use work to define ourselves. When I meet someone randomly, they have no idea who I am, they ask me my name, and they ask me what I do. It's like question two, what do you do? Work defines our identity. We believe that work is incredibly valuable. So valuable that it gives us our identity. And God agrees that work is valuable, but there might be a problem with taking it that far. Uh, One of my favorite theologians, who is just like the smartest person in the world, uh, is called Miroslav Volf. It's a good name, isn't it? It's fun to say. Miroslav Volf says, The contemporary religion of work has little to do either with worship of God or with God's demands on human life. It has to do with worship of self and the human demands on the self. Which is a very fancy way of saying, you are what you do. Work defines your core identity. If you work, you are valuable. And the more important your work, the more valuable you are. If you earn money, then you're stimulating the economy. And the more money you earn, the more valuable you are. If your work is prestigious, if you're successful, if you get to be a speaker or write books about being an expert in your field, you are more valuable. That is the paradigm of work in our society. But according to God, you are not what you do. You are who God has made you. Your worth is that you are created by God in God's image. That He loves you. That you are worth something. Worth everything. Worth dying on the cross for. That's where our value comes from in God's sight, that he loves us, that he made us, that we are his and he is ours. Our relationship with God is the thing that should give us our sense of value and importance, not what we do. And yet, before I go to my next point, I do want to say there is still something redeemable Uh, there's still a grain of truth in this paradigm. And maybe that's why it's so catchy. Maybe that's why our society has gone all in on this paradigm, because there is still a grain of truth. Work is still valuable, and it is still a key part of what makes you, you. What you do doesn't define you, and how successful you are doesn't define your value, but our work is the outworking of who we are. That's a good word, isn't it? Outworking. It's got the word work in it. That's handy. Our work is the outworking of the self that is already defined in God. So you find yourself in God, step one, And then step two is to put it into practice, to do it. And that's work. 
paid or unpaid, in the home, out of the home, at church, in the world. Doing something with who you are is work. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, which is on the screen again, there it is, says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we've already said that the world says that work is for you, that it defines you and your value. But also in the world, work is for your boss, right? Who here works for somebody else, has somebody over them? It's a good chunk of us, isn't it? You work, you don't work for yourself. Like on some level you might, psychologically, but practically you work for someone else and you have to do what they tell you to. And that's actually what these verses are really about. The context, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, I've, I've sucked it out of its original context and put it on the screen for you. But if you have a paper Bible, you can have a look and see what the context is. And the context is not just employees, it's slaves. He's talking to Christian slaves and saying, you don't work for your master who owns you, you work for your master who owns you. Sorry, that's confusing, isn't it? But he's doing, it's, it's on purpose, right? He's kind of trying to change the paradigm, the way that they think about themselves and how they see themselves. A slave in this culture saw themselves as, as belonging to some person and having to do everything that person said they had to do. That's the definition of slavery. And what Paul is saying to them is, put that to one side and know that you are working for the Lord. And that word, the Lord, is, is the master. That's why it's a kind of a play on words. But he means Jesus. You are working for Jesus and not your earthly master. The theologian who you've probably heard of, Martin Luther. Um, I thought, you know, Lewis is always talking about the Lutherans. I'd better do it too. Martin Luther wrote this. Uh, uh, remember, Martin Luther started life as a monk living in a monastery, and then he was like, the gospel's for everyone, not just the people in the monastery. Uh, and everyone should read the Bible, not just the people who speak Latin. And one of the things he wrote about all of that was, was this, the work of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All works are measured before God by faith alone. So he's basically applying that Colossians verse. He's saying that there is no distinction between secular work and sacred work. All work is sacred, if you believe it is. If in your heart you are working for God, then God sees that heart. And you don't have to be a pastor or a monk or a priest because God sees the heart. Uh, we are straying 
are into Lewis's territory from last week here, aren't we? Your work is worship. Worship isn't just the music. It can be your nine-to-five job. Timothy Keller. Timothy Keller says, what is the purpose of human life? What is life about? What does a good human life look like? It's a good question. It's a big, big, big question. Uh, You need to read the whole Bible to answer that question. And having answered that question to some degree or other, you then ask, how does my work serve people well? You see, if you know what the Bible's vision for a good world is or for a good life, and then you know what you're paid to do or what you spend your week doing, even if it's not paid work, you can join those two things together. You should join those two things together. I would say, a quick sketch of a good life, the good life is a life which is just and fair, a life that is peaceful and harmonious. It is full of beauty and joy. It is flourishing in every way. That's the Bible's picture of a good life in a nutshell. So if you're a a garbage collector, if that's the work that you do, nine to five, or five to nine, they start early, don't they? You are making the world beautiful and peaceful. Just as a musician makes the world beautiful or joyful, or a bank manager who provides for people so that they can use what they've earned in a way that is fair and just, or or so that they can own a home and a place of peace. Maybe you're a social worker and you're working to bring harmony and flourishing into lives that are broken or dysfunctional. Maybe you work in retail and you're able in so many ways to bring some of that good life to every customer that walks through your doors, to treat them fairly by selling them things at a fair price and to sell things that add true value to their lives, not things that will waste them money, not things that will bring them harm, but things that are good. You see that being a a Christian at work is this way bigger picture than you might have thought. I think sometimes we have this idea that that the, the pastor's going to get up on a Sunday and preach a sermon about how to be a Christian at work, and it's going to be, talk to your colleagues about Jesus and don't steal from your boss, the end. But it's a bigger picture. It's so much bigger than that. You know, we say, it's over here, isn't it? We are desperate for God and passionate for people. That doesn't have to stop when you get in your car and go home. That can be your vision in your workplace. That can be your vision in your home. Our work out in the world, whatever we do, should fulfill the vision of being desperate for God and passionate for people. And so, we reach the Bible reading for this morning. Uh, We're reading Luke chapter 19. Uh, This is Jesus teaching on this whole topic of work. 
Uh, this is just one example uh, of times when Jesus instructs his, his disciples particularly uh, about what it means to work for God. Luke 19, 11 to 27. Here we go. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble worth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your minute has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minnow has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minnow. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in. And reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his minor away from him and give it to the one who has ten minors. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Whew. That's a good one, isn't it? Uh, Jesus told a lot of parables. You might know that already. I love I loved the parables, uh, but they can be misunderstood. So we've got, to, we've got to interpret carefully. We've got to think about the context. Uh, think about what is Jesus doing? What's his mission? Because what, happen, what happens here in this parable is going to be a picture that is helpful in that context. Jesus is trying to explain something about who he is and what he's up to and what he's doing by telling this story. So we need to understand that, you know, this isn't necessarily a perfect picture of a, like a one-to-one -one correspondence, but it's going to give us some impressions about the work of Jesus and his kingdom. And then after we've done that, we should be able to make sense of it for our context and what Jesus is doing with his kingdom today. Let's do that. Um, I've got a list of five things to figure out. First off, we've got this man of noble birth who's becoming a king. Anyone shout out? Who do you think this might make us think of? Jesus. Good Sunday school answer. Yes, we should be reminded of Jesus here. Jesus is actually, if you, if you have a paper Bible and you can read ahead, uh, you'll see that 
Jesus is just about to enter Jerusalem and all the people are going to wave their palm branches and say, here's the king. So he tells a story about a, a king going away and coming back. He's got kings entering into their kingdom on the mind. Uh, then you've got these servants. This nobleman has these servants. Uh, perhaps this is the followers of Jesus, the disciples. Uh, perhaps you and I might see ourselves in these servants too. And each of the servants is giving money, 10 minutes, uh, which is a fair, fair bit of money. It's a good sum. Basically, I guess the nobleman's job up to this point has been to use his great wealth to make more money. That's what rich people do, right? Put your money to work. Uh, but he needs to go away on a trip, so he appoints 10 of his servants to do the money-making work on his behalf. Uh, the, the word they would use is stewards. They are the stewards of his money and his work. They're going to carry out his business in his name. So perhaps uh, the minas remind you, or the disciples originally, and then us by extension, of the things that God has given to us. Uh, we just preached a whole series about the Holy Spirit, and we talked about how God gives his people spiritual gifts. So maybe the minas can make you think of your spiritual gifts and think, well, they've been given to me to be put to work, to use them. Or perhaps the minas are supposed to represent something a bit broader than that. Uh, maybe for you they represent uh, the love of God, the, the wondrous gospel of Jesus that he has given us. Uh, the church family that he's put us in and the sense of calling and purpose that he puts in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Those things are not for you just to enjoy. They're to be put to work put to use, to overflow. We are so loved that we ought to overflow in love for others. We are so enfolded in God's family that we should feel a call to serve one another as His people, to do the activity of being a Christian and not just enjoy the experience. But then, we could take it yet another level, yet another interpretation, even broader than that, could just be to include all of the resources that any of us might have. God has given you your time. God has given you your money. God has given you any skills or abilities you might have, any networks or relationships you might have formed. Everything that we have comes from God. And therefore, everything that we have comes with a responsibility to put it to work. So the minutes can be kind of interpreted on any of those levels, or perhaps all of them. Uh, and there's kind of a different challenge as you kind of examine it from different angles. That's the great thing about a parable. And then we have these evil subjects who hate the nobleman and say, we don't want this man to be our king. Well, obviously, that's the people who opposed Jesus. Uh, if anyone knows the, the great story of Zacchaeus, um, we're going to have, have a sermon on that, uh, I think, in the PM in this series. Uh, but that story comes just before this parable is told. Like, Zacchaeus is probably still sitting there 
with his mates and, and with some of the Pharisees and so on, grumbling that Jesus is eating with a tax collector and being friends with evil people. These people who oppose Jesus could have been listening to this very story. And here, Jesus puts those people in his story. And then they get their just desserts at the end. Uh, it's confronting, isn't it? So, as I said, uh, unavoidably, there's a lot of judgment in this parable. The first judging uh, happens kind of halfway through when the servants come and the king, the newly minted king, says, servants, come, come for judgment. I want to find out what you've done. Find out whether you've gained more money for me. And the first one turns one into ten. He's made good investments. He's invested wisely. Uh, it wasn't Bitcoin. He's done a good job. Uh, and he's commended for his work. And his reward is more work. Way more. He's gone from working for a businessman and being given you know, $10,000 and turned into 100000 or whatever the conversion is, to working for a king. And now he's like a governor of 10 cities. That's quite a promotion, isn't it? Um, and there's a lot of honor in that. He's been honored with more work. Work is not a curse. It's a reward in itself and a privilege. Uh, another servant uh, does similarly uh, and is rewarded in kind with five cities. But then there's this third servant. We don't hear about the other seven. There were ten, weren't there? But anyway, the third one comes along with the original coin still in a piece of cloth. He hasn't done anything with it. And he has the tenacity to accuse the king of being a hard man, of being severe and strict, and even of being lazy. He says, you take out what you didn't put in and reap what you didn't sow. That is to say, you don't do your own work, you make us do it for you. That's not fair. It's not a very good attitude, is it? This is offensive to the king. I mean, partly because the king hasn't asked the servants to do the work because he's stingy or greedy or cruel or severe. He's generous. We've just seen his generosity in giving whole chunks of his kingdom to these servants who did a good job. He wants to share the work with them. He sees the work as a good and wants to share that good with his servants. And yes, at the end of the day, he had a job to do and he didn't do his job. Simple as that. So he doesn't even keep it safe. He doesn't do anything. He just wraps it up in a handkerchief and sits on it. I think the real reason this servant didn't do what they were supposed to is that they had no respect for the king. They didn't want the king to earn anything because they thought the king didn't deserve to have anything earned because he wasn't doing his own work. He was expecting the servants to do it for him. And so he utters these famous words, I tell you 
that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. It's a judgment. It's a hard word, isn't it? I mean, it's not quite as shocking as the judgment on those subjects who said, we don't want this man to be our king, is it? These enemies of mine who did not want them to be king, me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. I mean, that's, that was the done thing. You know, if you were a nobleman in the Roman Empire and you went away to the city of Rome and the emperor made you a king and then you traveled back, Again, the, the celebratory kind of bringing in of the new king involved killing that king's enemies. You got rid of all the opposition. Clean the slate, start fresh. Uh, it's pretty brutal uh, and pretty shocking. All the more shocking to us, I think, than it would have been to the original listeners who lived in that Roman world, and they were like, well, I guess that's what kings do. I mean, this king is supposed to be Jesus, so it feels a bit wrong. But still, it's shocking. And imagine if you were one of those Pharisees who'd just been complaining about Jesus being with Zacchaeus, and now he puts you in his story and then has your head chopped off. It's shocking. And so, here it's Jesus. He's literally on the cusp of arriving in Jerusalem, where he's going to be enthroned as a king and put his enemies to the sword, right? That's what happens in the next chapter, isn't it? I know, I haven't read ahead yet. Can someone help me? That's not at all what happens, is it? When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, this expectation is completely flipped on its head. When King Jesus arrives... Yes, he arrives to a great fanfare and they wave the palm branches and say Hosanna, but then he is arrested, tried, tortured, and killed. Those who've said, we don't want this man to be our king, will succeed in deposing him. And those who genuinely wanted to serve him will mourn his loss. Only that's not the end of the story, is it? Theologians argue uh, about how to interpret the kind of judgment moment in this parable. Some say that Jesus has to be talking about his own arrival in Jerusalem because it's just about to happen and that the king coming back to be made king is Jesus coming into Jerusalem, completing his three years of travel his ministry around Galilee and Judea. This is the moment of the king's return. But he doesn't defeat his earthly enemies. He defeats sin and death instead. But also, other theologians say this parable is about the second coming of Jesus, Judgment Day. The triumphal return on the day of the Lord, where he comes on the clouds with the sound of trumpets and the dead are raised and the world is judged. The culmination of history. Is that the king's return? Where some are faithful and others oppose him? I mean, it can be both. Maybe we could just say it's both. 
So what's the point? The point is this. Be like those first two servants. Be a faithful follower of Jesus. Serve him. Work for him. Honour him with your hearts and with your lives. It's not enough to just receive what he's given you and wrap it in cloth. You've got to do something with it. It's active, not passive, to follow Jesus. And following implies action, doesn't it? He has given to us so generously. And so we should take what he's given us and use it generously. All our work is like gardening from Genesis 2. To make the world good or to keep the world from falling apart. We don't work for ourselves to puff ourselves up or to give ourselves an identity. Christ gives us our identity and our work is an outworking of who he defines us as. And we work for the good of the world, to serve God's vision for the world. We work because we are passionate Desperate for God and passionate for people. God has given us work to do. I want to finish with one more theologian and a book recommendation. Uh, This is Ben Witherington III, uh, and he's written an amazing book that could be a whole sermon series, but I don't have time. I'm already over time. Uh, He said this, and yeah, if a sermon or a a little quote from him isn't enough, I do recommend his whole book, which is called Work, A Kingdom Perspective. Uh, If you want that again, I can write it down for you. Anyway, Ben Witherington III writes this. Too few Christians have realized that our work is not merely our means of support, but also our means of making a difference in the world. Indeed, our means of culture-making. Our work shapes us. The question is, will we fashion it into something that reflects our glorious creator and the primary tasks for which we exist? So I'd like to invite you to have a little moment to reflect, to think about the work that you do during the week or at church. Whether you're paid or unpaid, whether you're volunteering here at church or somewhere else, whether you're at home or out in your field, have a think about what you do with your time and your effort and the things that God has given you, the skills, the abilities, What would it look like in your particular context to work for God alone? This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.com. Don't